0: Take your Bibles and turn to the first page past the contents. Genesis chapter one. I don't know what page number that is for you. For me, it is actually page number one. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, just reach there in the pew back. Uh, and there's one you can uh, use this morning. We'd love for you to take advantage of that. Genesis chapter one, verses, or chapters one and two are what we're gonna look at today. Uh, We're going to take kind of a scan through some big chunks of scripture. We are introducing an evangelism, I hate to use the word, strategy. Uh, It's a method. It's a way for you to share the gospel. And we're introducing that now. Tom is going to be taking us, uh, a group of six of us, I believe, uh, through the the training of that over the next few weeks. We're going to be introducing it first to them then we will have those leaders that can then train other groups But the, the next three messages they, they are a series the, the evangelism strategy is called Three Circles And we're going to look at each of those circles this, uh, over the next three weeks This morning, the first circle is God's design But I want to bore you with some, t- some statistics first uh, I like statistics, they're fun, um, I think So y'all have to sit through them uh, but let's assume some things first about these statistics as we go through them, because we're going to see them in a certain way, in a certain light, and we need to make some assumptions at the beginning, because it's going to use particular terms that we need to understand. First of all, the first assumption is that not all evangelicals are saved, okay? Let's, let's start there. Uh, not everyone who would call themselves an evangelical is saved, all right? Number two, second assumption, some non-evangelicals are saved. Now, what we're talking about when we talk about evangelicals, that's a large clump of people, normally not your mainline denominations. Evangelicals would probably be more Baptist, uh, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, uh, Church of God in Christ, some of those uh, groups. Non-evangelical churches would be more your mainline denominations, uh, Catholicism. Episcopalian, uh, Presbyterian. And these aren't, uh, you know, there are fuzzy borders between these categories. That's why we're making some assumptions here that not all evangelicals are saved just because they call themselves that or show up in a Baptist church doesn't mean they're saved. And some non-evangelicals are saved. Just because they're of a different denomination doesn't mean they aren't believers. So if we begin with those two assumptions, then our stats here that we're going to talk about in just a second uh, we can comfortably say the, the numbers work. Uh, these uh, numbers come out the same with those two caveats. And the stats we're looking at is our lostness. Uh, we begin with the world, lostness by the numbers. In the world, there are 7.7 billion people, and 619 million of them are evangelicals. That works out to 8% if you can't do the math quickly in your head like I can't. That's a lot of lostness in the world. A lot of lostness. 8% of the world, according to their own testimony, uh, is saved. And the rest, I can do this math, 92% are not. In the U.S., 327.2 million people, 86 million of them are evangelicals and Again, we're making the assumption that an evangelical is a saved person. All right, that's the assumption. It may not be a safe assumption, but that's the assumption we're going to make because the numbers are bad enough if we just stick with that, right? Only 26% of the U.S. is an evangelical, considers himself or herself an evangelical. In Louisiana, 4.66 million people, 1.26 million evangelicals you see the percentage is a little bit better than the US in Louisiana in Calcasieu Parish 202 455,000 people 51,570 of them say they are evangelicals that's 25.4% if you're keeping track then in sulfur, and we kind of had to extrapolate this number because we couldn't find, I couldn't find the exact number of evangelicals, so I kind of averaged the percentage between Louisiana and Calcasieu and came up with around 26%. 20,278 people, and we know that number is off now. I think it's going to be close, much closer or over 25,000 when they do the census next year, but that was the last census And if we base it on the numbers we have, take that average, 26%, there are 5,272 evangelicals in sulfur, meaning 15,000 people, best we can tell, don't know Jesus, don't have a saving faith in him. Again, the assumption being that evangelical, when they answer that question, they answer it as, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Even if the number is much smaller, again, if the number is much smaller, a uh, number of even believers in sulfur, and, and Barna has good uh, numbers, and I, I just didn't look them up. He, When they do a, a, a survey like this, they will ask, do you consider yourself a born-again believer? I mean, they get very specific, and you get some uh, better numbers. But let's, let's just go with these. Seventy-five percent-ish. Of sulfur, is not saved does not consider themselves an evangelical and the number of nuns, and I'm not talking Catholicism, I'm talking N-O-N-E-S nuns, I'm not anything is staggering, it's another 25% of our population doesn't consider themselves anything, no religious affiliation okay, so there are your stats for the day, you wake up now alright for those of you who don't like numbers, if last words are given the most weight, and we've talked about this before, the, some famous last words of people on their deathbed, if, if last words are given the most weight, then we take, of course, we take everything Jesus said as important, but we take those last words as, okay, this is the last thing he wanted to say before he went up, right? He said, go make disciples, go therefore into all nations. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Luke records in Acts a similar last word. Uh, right before he goes up, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. If, if, if last words are given the most weight, the last things our Savior said to his disciples, and his disciples are us was go and make disciples, go and tell the world about Jesus, go and share the gospel. But these weren't instructions merely for the ministerial class. These weren't instructions, all right, disciples, my 12, at that point 11, but in a little while 12, Y'all have to do this and everybody else gets to sit by the wayside and watch you work. That is not the Great Commission. The, these instructions are for every believer. Every believer is a missionary. Every believer is to take the gospel to people who don't know the gospel. Every believer is responsible to share the love and salvation of Jesus Christ with everyone they possibly can, and you can with a lot more than you think you can. Every believer is responsible. Every believer is responsible in every situation, There's not a bad time to share the gospel. There may be some more uncomfortable times, but if the Holy Spirit is prompting and saying, this person needs you to share, that is the moment you need to share. Is it an awkward moment? It might be. It's always awkward to tell somebody they're going to hell. There's no good time. The only time it's not awkward to say that is when I stand up here. And y'all kind of like, well, he's supposed to tell us that, and then you leave, and you're like, well, but I'm not. But when somebody's sitting down with you at the restaurant or at the at the dry cleaners or. I don't, Who sits at the dry cleaners? Anyway, you know what I mean. When you come across those people and the Holy Spirit prompts you to talk to somebody and you say, can I share with you the hope of the gospel? And they don't understand that they even need the hope of the gospel and you've got to get them uh, lost before you can get them saved. And to get them lost, they have to understand, I can die and go to hell. Without Jesus. That's an awkward uh, conversation. It doesn't matter the situation. And then every believer is required to share the gospel in every situation. At every opportunity. When does that opportunity come? When the Holy Spirit leads. And we, by God's sovereignty and by the lives that we live, we are given gospel outposts. As a believer... Anywhere I go is a gospel outpost. I'm an ambassador wherever. We elect, we don't elect, uh, ambassadors are appointed and confirmed. And they're ambassadors usually to a specific country or group, uh, ambassador to the UN, ambassador to Germany, uh, ambassador to Chad, ambassador to all these places. But occasionally, I saw, I can't remember what his specific title is, but I saw that yesterday uh, an ambassador at large was appointed. And he's got a specific job, but he's not to a country, he's to a task. That is us. We're not appointed to a country or a locale. We are appointed to a task. We are ambassadors of Christ Everywhere we go, we are the gospel outpost. So that means that our homes are gospel outposts, outposts for our families and our neighborhoods. That means our desks are gospel outposts at school or at work. That means our cars are gospel outposts for community contacts because that's how most of us get around. Those are all tools, those are all methods, those are all outposts for us to share the gospel. And why do we need to share the gospel? Well, we begin with that need at God's design. We need to share the gospel because God designed the world a certain way and we messed that up. And we see this in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis we see in verses one through twenty-five of chapter one that God created us and he loves us. And we're gonna read verses one through twenty-five. A lot of you have read this a lot of times because, right, we all just said we're gonna read the Bible through in a year, and January one, we start on Genesis one, and we you know, January two, we read Genesis two, and we usually get maybe halfway through good We get halfway through january we get halfway through uh uh genesis and 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 then maybe some of you actually made it to leviticus and that's where you stalled so we've read this passage a bunch of times we know this i mean we could we can quote a lot of it but that's okay we're going to read it some more in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light, saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. Evening came in the morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. So we see, just obviously, God designed the world and everything in it. It wasn't happenstance, and, and I could right now get way bogged down in creation theories and, and all of these things and age of the earth stuff, and, and those are great conversations to have. Let's, you know, invite me to coffee sometime and we'll, we'll talk about those things, but this morning I'm going to say that God did it, regardless of, of what we understand or don't understand the mechanisms to be God did it. God designed the world. It wasn't an accident. He wasn't unsure of what uh, he was doing. I've always enjoyed reading Greek mythology. Uh, I've, I've just I've loved it since I was in middle school. And one of the, my favorite stories from Greek mythology is the creation of the horse. Uh, how many of you know that story? Am I? I'm the. Only geek. Any, any English lit teachers in here, that's probably the only, or Westerns, I don't know, uh, well, anyway. Uh, Poseidon, god of the sea, wanted to impress some girl. Maybe it was Athena or something, one of the other goddesses. I don't even remember who it was. But he was determined to impress this girl, so he wanted to make a new creature that had never been seen before, something beautiful, something that captured his love for her. So he decided he was going to create something. And he went through multiple, let's call them false starts, hippopotamus, Watch a video of the hippopotamus. That's just some funny stuff right there. Rhinoceros. Giraffe. Zebra. uh, Gazelle. Deer on and on and on. And this was a creation story of how we got the horse. He finally got to the horse. I mean, he started really rough, elephants and all these other four-legged walk big walking things and he just, "Ah, no, no, we shove the nose in here, make it skinnier there, little skinnier legs, faster. Oh, now that's a gazelle." All right, doing no, no, so, you know, and he kept working until finally he got the horse. That is great. Fun story to read and think about every time you go to the zoo and you see a rhino and a hippo and you're like, "Eh, boy, Poseidon messed up. Wonderful story, completely false because God did not struggle with what he was creating. God was meticulous. God was methodical in his creation. He knew what he was doing before he did it. He knew what the plan was before he ever created it. It was not a mistake or an accident and that he had to use some sort of, well, I got this over here, too bad, I was aiming for that over there. This time I'll get that, and oh, man, I missed, nope. And That wasn't how God created. Everything he created was as it was meant to be as soon as it was created. The, the horse was supposed to look like the horse, and the hippo, as funny as it is, was supposed to look like it, the hippo, and the trees, and the plants, and all of that worked immediately upon creation, upon his uh, uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing presentation of everything. God did it. It was sovereign decree and divine declaration. He did it by His word, He spoke. And it was. He decreed and it existed. That was God working. Do you see design? Do you see the lack of mistake? Because then as he creates, he says over and over and over again, it was good. He saw it and it was good. God doesn't call bad things good. He doesn't. When God calls something good, it is good. So his creation was good. God's design was perfect, correct, and as it should be, God designed. And then, toward the end of the sixth day, verses 26 down through 224, we get to the pinnacle of God's creation, humanity. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth and for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, we're now, Scripture is, is now focusing, drilling down on the pinnacle of creation, humanity. At the time that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. Now, earlier he's speaking, but now he's getting his hands dirty. He's, he's molding is the picture that we get. He's, he's forming And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. God didn't breathe into any other nostrils. He gave them life. He spoke them life. But to man, we were breathed life from the very breath of God. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedelum and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are to free to eat from any tree of the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one... At last is bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. The pinnacle of creation. Humanity. He creates and gives breath to the very thing that will soon break his heart. And yet he creates it anyway. And he creates this thing, this man, this woman, the Bible is clear to tell us, repetitively tells us, in the image of God, in his image. In Greek, we would say imago dei. And that's a a phrase that's tossed around a lot, that it's used that way. Instead of in his image, they'll say imago dei, to give it, I don't know, Sounds more impressive, I guess. I don't know, but that's what they they do. People do. Why? Why are we focused on that? Why do we look? Because nothing else has the image of God. We we hear uh, from animal rights groups that that animals are people too. No, they're not. We should treat them humanely. Yes, I'm not into uh, kicking puppies. And and, and squishing kittens, and you know that. No, we should treat, we are stewards of the land. We are to use things in a righteous manner, and that includes how we treat animals, even how we kill animals. I I was taught to hunt, and I was taught that you never wounded, you always shot to kill because you wanted it to be as quick and as painless for that animal as possible. Why? It just is ingrained in us. To do, to, to be, should be, nice. To treat things with respect. But, but even if we treat animals with respect, even if we are good stewards of, of natural resources on the earth, none of that contains God's image. Only people do. So, this is why it's a bit on the ridiculous side that the governor of Virginia that just recently said the decision to kill or not to kill a child, uh, a post-abortive child, that's up to the mother and the doctor, but they just made it a law that you can't be cruel to animals. There's a problem there. There's a disconnect there. Because we are infinitely greater than animals. We carry the image of God. But the point here is not that we're better than dogs. The point that I want to make here is that we are to treat people better than we would treat dogs. And there are many times when we don't. We are created in the image of God. Therefore, this should affect how we love everyone. This should affect that we love everyone. There is no one that is a, quote, animal. I don't care their sinfulness, I don't care where they're from, I don't care where their skin, what their skin color is. The Bible says every person is created in the image of God. Therefore, every person is an image bearer of God, and therefore we should love that person as we love God ourselves. Yes, exactly. This affects how we treat everyone, because we're quick to say we love everybody. I love him. Sorry, John, if that messes up the speaker, I apologize. Making a point. I love them. I mean, I'll, I'll treat them like crap. Sorry. I'll treat them like bad things. Scubalon, if you want the Greek word. I'll treat them like whatever I want to, but, but I love them. God bless them. Bless their heart. I don't know anybody here that's ever said that. Me, me too. This affects how we treat people. Would we treat God that way? Then don't treat them that way. Image bearers. Every person in the world is an image bearer. Osama bin Laden was an image bearer of God. Pick your 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 world. Dictator, Pol Pot, Hitler, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, any of them, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, image bearers of God. So, how do we treat them? Like animals? No. Like image bearers of God. And then look at what God called his pinnacle of creation. Very good. Very good indeed is what our translation uh, that I'm using says. Very good, this creation, this pinnacle of his creation, humanity. All those names I mentioned are very good image bearers indeed. Are they sinless? No. Are they perfect? No. Do they do horrible things? A lot of them, yes. Will those people, without the blood of Jesus Christ shed and, and believed in by them, uh, they were shed for them, but without the blood of Jesus Christ uh, believed in upon, uh, on their part, will they spend eternity in hell? Yes. But they are still image bearers of God. According to our statistics, 25, uh, 75% of everybody everywhere except for the world, eight, uh, 92% of the world of the U.S., Louisiana, Calcasieu Parish, and Sulphur, they are all going to hell. And yet they are image bearers of God, whom we are called to love. And what is the greatest love that we can show someone who is dying and going to hell? Share the gospel with them. Thank you for answering that. And then we see in God's design here that, that humanity, this pinnacle of creation, this, these image bearers of God, he didn't just have a design for creation broadly, he didn't just have a design for creation specifically in creating man and woman, but he has a design for every aspect of our lives. And he, he goes through this, we, we talked about it, we read it, we're going to go back and highlight some places Uh, God has a design for every aspect of our lives. God has a design for our gender identity. It's amazing how when we just preach Scripture, how when we just listen to where the Lord is leading us in Scripture, how we get to the topics of the day. I didn't plan to preach on gender identity, and I'm not going to spend hours on this, uh, but our gender identity is set our design is set. There is male and there is female. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. God created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. He did not create confusion. He did not create gender dysphoria. He did not create someone who was born with certain chromosomes, but then somewhere along the way decides they got the wrong chromosome somehow. Sinfulness has created such situations. Sin has created such situations. The the brokenness of the world that we're really going to talk about next week has created situations where that sort of thing happens, even at the genetic level. But... God did not create but two genders. No X, no this or that. And the extension of that is God has a design for our families. Be fruitful and multiply. I read, yes, just this week. And let me make sure I get this right. It was a little convoluted. A 61-year-old lady gave birth to a baby. She was the surrogate for this child whose source was the sister of the man her son married. That was not God's design. God's design was for a man and a woman to be fruitful and multiply. His design was never for homosexual marriage, homosexual relationships, homosexuality. God's design for families was a man and a woman to be fruitful and multiply. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And he's going to talk about it even a little bit later and we'll wait till we get there God has a design for our work life uh, 28 through 30 of chapter 1 bless them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls uh, look I've given you every seed bearing plant cultivate it, skip down to verses 15 through 17 of chapter 2 the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden to work it and to watch over it our, our work life was set out, the design. That we would work. We had to work even before sin, y'all. We can't blame it on sin. I'd love to. Well, if we didn't sin, we wouldn't have to work. Nope, sorry. Still got to work. But there was joy in the work that maybe we don't have now. The work life was set. It was designed by God. Our rest life... Our leisure time, rest on the seventh day, he said in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So the heavens and the earth were created on the seventh day. He completed his work and he blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because he had rested. And said, you need to rest from your work. Even the good work, even the work you like, you have to rest. And God had a design for married life, leave and cleave. Verse 24. I had the pleasure of uh, performing a wedding last night of a couple that are leaving their home and uh, their homes to to join together and create a new home. And one of the things I tell uh, prospective couples in our premarital counseling is, if you've not cut the apron strings, cut them because you are not married to your mama or your daddy. You are married to this person. You are to leave the family and join with your new spouse. And that doesn't mean you don't have family time and you don't love them and you don't spend time with them and all those things. But they are no longer your focus. They are no longer who you care about above all things. It is now each other. That's who you are focused on. That is the biblical way. That is what God set up to leave your family and to join with your spouse. That is the design. And that comes only with a man and a woman joining together to be a family. And finally, God designed us for a relationship with him. God took the care. This meticulous, uh, detail-oriented God designed us to have a relationship with him. And we didn't read it, but it's Genesis 3, 8. You might have to turn the page. Then the man and his wife Heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. We're going to stop there so we don't get too far, right? God designed us for the relationship. It was a normal thing for God to spend time with Adam and Eve. He wanted unbroken communion with with His creatures, with His creation. And it doesn't say, as far as Scripture tells us, that God spent time walking His dog petting his cat, feeding the fish. Maybe he didn't have a pet snake. That would have been awkward later on, right? God didn't spend all that time on that part of creation. He spent time in intimate, unbroken communion with humanity, with Adam and Eve. God wanted that relationship. That is what we were designed for. Constant, regular, intimate, Transparent communion with God. And then we went and messed it up. Humanity messed up this unbroken communion. We're going to talk about that in detail next week. But what you need to see this morning is the gospel restores that communion. We don't have that communion anymore. Sin ruined it. Again, we're going to spend some time on that next week and the brokenness of the world. But we now long for that communion. We don't know what it is sometimes, that that, that longing that we feel. We we don't understand what that draw is. but, But ask people who have everything if they have everything. And nearly all of them will tell you, no, there's still something missing. We just spent six weeks, if you come to Sunday school and you do the same lessons we do in our class... Six weeks of Solomon saying over and over and over and some more times over, oh, it's futile. I tried money, <laughs> tried women, <clears throat> eating, drinking, <clears throat> I got everything I wanted, and found I didn't really want any of it. None of it satisfied me. Twelve chapters in Ecclesiastes, or uh, rather, uh No, that's right. Twelve chapters in Ecclesiastes. The last two verses of chapter 12. Twelve chapters of, I didn't like it, I didn't like it, I didn't like it. He waits until literally the end of the book. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There's no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard... The conclusion of the matter is this. When we study all the futility of life, when we get all the wisdom we think we can have, when we have done everything we think we want to do, if it has involved women or money or men, ladies, if we have, we've done every pleasure, taken part in all of it, we get to the end of life, we find that. Fear God and keep His commands. That was what mattered because this is, all, this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Spend all your time amassing stuff and things and activities and experiences, and you find at the end it just never fills the hole that God designed in you. That hole can only be filled by him. The three circles that we're talking about, I'm going to show you this morning. We begin with what we've begun with this morning, God's design. And we see it uh, in a circle, uh, up there in the right-hand corner, God's design. God's design was that every area of our lives, our families, our marriages, money, sex life, work life, and, and just plain life god designed and he designed all of them to focus to point to a relationship with him but we have departed from that design and the bible calls that sin sin takes us away from god's design we're going to see it next week when we talk about adam and eve We're born with a sinful nature, so sin comes naturally to us. We don't don't have to learn to sin. Anybody who's raised a two-year-old knows. You don't have to learn to sin. We didn't teach them to steal cookies out of the cabinet and say no when we ask them. They do that on their own. It is a sin nature, and we all have it. So there's nobody who gets it right. We all sin and fall short of God's perfect design, Romans 3.23 says. And this sin leaves us in brokenness, the second circle. Our lives are broken. The world is broken. And it's easy for us to understand that brokenness, right? I mean, It feels like broken relationships, addiction, depression, discouragement, guilt, shame. We, we all know what brokenness is, and we have that brokenness. So we try to fix it because we want out of that brokenness. And that's those squiggly lines there. We've got all these plans. Oh, I'll fix it this way. I'll fix it this way. Solomon was going to fix it by doing more, having more stuff, having more experiences. And and we try maybe similar ways. But when we do that, when we try to find ways to alleviate our pain, when we strive to be better people, hoping that somehow, some way. Our good will outweigh the bad. We really just get more and more broken. We just realize more and more how broken we are. And and that feels like a bad thing, and it is. But in many ways, that feeling of brokenness is a good thing. Because that's when God gets our attention. When we feel broken on the inside and everything's all messed up, we know something needs to change when you're driving your car and you hear a noise you haven't heard before something's broken i need to get that fixed and 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 maybe some of you're wonderful and you can just go right to it and find it and fix it i'm less than that and i know i got to take it to clyde's i got to get it done i know something needs to change brokenness is what gets us ready to try god's solution and his solution is to repent and to believe the gospel. The Bible word for change is repent. And that's what we do. We repent of our sins. And that change comes from Jesus. He, he sent Jesus to live a perfect life. Die the death we deserve. Be raised to lay, life again. And, and prove who he says he is. And can do what he says he can do. Jesus came to forgive our sins. And all we need to do is repent and believe in him. And he'll give us his spirit. And his spirit helps us recover and pursue God's design. I, I got to ask someone uh, last night by text, uh, hey, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? We've talked about it a few times. And he said, oh, yes, I forgot to tell you. I, I talked to my, my wife and we sat down and I just I just talked to God. And I have felt different ever since. That's what the gospel does. He feels like he is... Back somehow into God's design the way He should have been. We recover that. We begin to pursue it. And then Jesus sends us right back. We follow the arrow again. Jesus sends us right back into the brokenness, into the broken world, to tell them how to find their way out of brokenness. My question for you this morning is where do you see yourself on the diagram? If you're in brokenness, that's where you are. You know it's because of sin, and you've tried your way out. What is stopping you this morning from repenting of your sin and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that only he can save you? What's to stop you from doing that today? It's as simple as calling out to God. No special words, no formula, just a prayer. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord for the way out of our brokenness, Lord. And I pray this morning, if there's someone here who feels like they cannot get out of that circle, they are bound by those walls, that brokenness, I pray that today they would trust you, hear the gospel of salvation, that only Jesus can save them, only repentance and faith in his act can save them. Lord, I pray today they would call on you They would cry out, Lord, I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I'm tired of this brokenness. Will you please save me? I trust in you. I repent of my sin and I put my faith in Jesus Christ alone for that salvation. Lord, move on hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who believe, what would prevent you from being involved in this when we open it up to our church? an opportunity to learn to share the gospel in a way that everybody's going to relate to. Tom has already had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone using this method, and that person got saved. I believe it was just last, uh, this past week or maybe week before last. So what's to stop you from sharing the good news? What's to stop you from telling God's image bearers how they can get close to, back to, his design. How would you respond today? Would you accept Christ? I'm in that broken circle and I need to get out of it. Would you commit to telling more people about Jesus Christ? Would you say, I realize that I have not lived up to God's design for my life. But I want to do that. We're going to have a time of response now. Pray the Orchestra's orchestra is going to lead the band. And we're going to sing. But This is your opportunity to do business with God. And maybe you want to come and pray with me. You want to come pray with Tom. Maybe you just want to come to these rails and and make an altar out of this stage and give something to the Lord. Whatever it is, let's stand and let's, and in this time, let's do business with God.